This morning, as far as realness, our topic for sure falls in that category. We're going to talk about suffering. That's what James is going to take us through. And not to be a Debbie Downer and say, well, our lives are full of suffering. We could say that unless you go straight from cradle to the grave, everybody's lives are touched pretty heavily by suffering. Whether it's, whether it's the baby in the, in the crib crying because she's hungry, or the older child suffering from a bully at school, or as we get older, suffering because a friend leaves and moves away, or suffering as adults around financial issues, or as we get older, sicknesses, injuries, diseases. Suffering is there in each of our lives. And I like the way uh, Mark Talbot put it. He said, suffering, let's keep it simple. He said, suffering is any experience that is unpleasant enough that I want it to end. That's suffering. Any experience unpleasant enough that I want it to end. But now as you think about that, when you're in the midst of suffering, what is your, your impulse, your reflex, your knee-jerk reaction? I'm suffering... What comes out of your mouth? Why? Why, God? Why me? Why now? Why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to suffer this? And the great thing about James, what he's going to do now is he's going to say, don't just let the voices of the culture give you your answer. And don't just look within and see what I have to say about my suffering. He says, let the word of God direct us. James is going to say, find our answers in Scripture. And that's what we're going to do this morning towards suffering. So I'd invite you now, if you would, to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read from James 5, verses 7 uh, through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may fall or may not fall under condemnation. You may be seated. Let's pray. James, you've written, but God speaks here into our hearts amidst suffering. Will you, would you minister to our souls? In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to look at this morning as we go through this is we'll call it, here's our simple outline. We'll call this, don't waste your suffering And you may be the type who says, all right, as far as suffering goes, or as far as any issue goes, give me an example. 
Give me a hero. Give me somebody I can follow. And if they did it, I know I can do it. And I can make it through that. And so James is going to give us three examples. He's going to say, look at the farmer, look at the prophets, and look at Job. If you like an example to follow, James is going to give us that. You might also be one who says, you know, examples, heroes, that's helpful, but I I want the big picture. I want to know what's going on. God, what are you doing on earth for heaven's sake? If you give me the big picture, we make it through in the end, I'm good. That'll help me through the suffering. You may be that type of person. Or you may be the type who just says, the motivation, you know, the examples, the encouragement, just tell me what to do. I go for the exhortation. Just tell me, do this, don't do this. I'll walk in that path. That's what I want. James is going to give us that too. And, and I was thinking of Alan, you know, as far as, you know, with a sermon in a, in a few days, hopefully you remember all of it, but I'm going to be a realist, okay? If I were a football player, right, Alan, quarterback's got to get at least two out of three. Say, so you got to remember two out of three of these points, I'm a baseball player. In a baseball, you're a rock star if you get one out of three. Okay? So I'm going to be happy if you remember one of these three in a few days because I really do think it'll minister to you and help you, help me with, with suffering. So those are our three points. Uh, that's where we're going. So the first thing is kind of a backstory to this is to think about pastorally. James is acting uh, or being pastoral as Howard's going to be pastoral and let us not hear the geese here. Um, But last week, amidst a challenging passage, you know, that weep and and howl and moan that that Howard took us through, James was harsh in that. He's going to be more pastoral and gentle now as he speaks to the, the, the congregation here. Howard had that illustration where he said, you know, close this ear, because it tends to go in one ear and out the other. Keep it in there. James is going to say, well, I'll give you another trick to that. I'm going to do repetition. James is going to say it and say it and say it again. Four times he says, be patient, be patient, be patient, reminding us pastorally. And he's going to say, persevere, persevere or be steadfast. He's going to say this over and over for us so that we get it. And as you think about the patience for a minute, patience is one of those traits that possessed by few, desired for by, by many. We want that patience. But we admit, I might not be the best at it. Okay? But James is connecting to a central theme in the book. If we go back to the very beginning, he said, consider it pure joy when you experience the trials. So we have to sit in them and be patient and profit from them and don't waste the suffering. And Howard said at the beginning that we're, we live in a culture, right, that wants things instantly. Give it to me instantly. We're saying, James is saying, no. Be a contrast culture where we need to wait. I think on a, on a humorous note, we've experienced that in our own home about being patient. Donna might know where we're going here. But three years ago, our microwave in the wall just went on the fritz, electrical issue, done. Okay, so I thought, 
We'll just buy one of those $90 ones and put it on the counter. Mm, no, that doesn't have the aesthetic value. We couldn't do that. Okay, we're going to bite the bullet and buy you know, a new one in the, w- in, in the wall. And Donna said, no, that's like $3,000. We're not doing that. Well, we got to have a microwave. We can't live without it. We got to have stuff like that. Donna's one. I now appreciate that that having to take our time, if we need to heat something up, it has to go in the oven or in the frying pan and just, we got to be patient. So Donna, you've won there. Our home is now a culture of of waiting and (laughs) impatience. But patience for James is is more significant than having to wait, uh, you know, without a microwave. It's It's more than waiting for time to pass. It's much, much more than that. He's saying there's an endurance to it. To think about this, many times we're angry. There's a patience in anger. Even if it's a righteous anger to say, that person wronged me, but I'm going to wait upon the Lord because he says vengeance is mine. So there's, there's a, an activity in patience that's not just sitting there doing this. There's a depending on the Lord in patience that we need to be aware of. So the first example that James gives us is of the farmer. And this verse is interesting because right here, this is one of the keys that, one of the, maybe the main verse in the book that tells us this is written to Jewish Christians because this autumn rains and spring rains tells us that this is set, Palestine area, where they had that kind of culture where they're waiting on the rain. So what did the farmer have to do? The farmer had to be patient because come September, October, he would hopefully get the signal, okay, thunderstorms come. And then hopefully after that, some nice calm rains where he could plant the seed, then it germinates. Thank you, Lord, you've given me the rain. But then come the spring, he's dependent, hoping. And even this word here about until it receives, the tense of that verb is saying, it's a hopeful, it's a probable, but I'm still dependent on the Lord for the rain to come. So James is saying the farmer, look, this example that you have right around you is a picture of being patient in waiting. And we must do that as well, is where James is saying. But then I said, maybe you're the type, again, who wants the big picture of what is going on. God, what are you doing on earth for heaven's sake? And here's what James is saying here. He says, we need to wait, and it was in verse 7 as well, for the coming of the Lord. Right, it's for the coming of the Lord. What, what is James doing here? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, you know the fact that a duck, a duck wants to swim. A duck knows that it should swim, means there's water. That you and I get hungry means there's food. See, so let's put it that simply, that that's the way things are in the world. James is actually saying, the fact that there is suffering, that you and I suffer, means that there's a comforter. There's an ultimate comforter upon whom we are all waiting. Otherwise, there would not be pain and suffering to extend that thought of of C.S. Lewis, and I think he gets it right. 
And James is saying that ultimate purpose that is involved, we look forward to the coming. That word coming, there were typically three words in the New Testament that would have to do with coming. There is one kind of simple one that just meant it's an unveiling, right? Something's coming, it's going to be revealed. And then there was another one that built upon that, epiphania, that said it's not just an unveiling, but it's also the coming of a God. Okay, so an unveiling, the Greeks had this, oh, it's a coming of a God. But then there was another one, parousia. It's not just an unveiling, it's not just coming of a God, but it's the coming of the king with an army for his people. You see, that's what's happening in the coming of the Lord. When Christ comes, there's the unveiling, there's the God coming, it's the king coming with his army to get his people amidst their suffering. The Lord is coming back. And that is the big picture of why Scripture says our suffering is in the end like that. And we're preparing ourselves for the coming of the King. We don't know the day, but we're called to be ready to establish our hearts. Okay, to establish our hearts. To be ready. Now, some people take the be ready, the Lord is coming, like Biden last week. Oh, this could be Armageddon. You know, he threw that out there. So some people hear that stuff about Armageddon, and they're like, well, we got to prep. We got to prepare. So in our house, this is our prepping. We got eight bazillion things of peanut butter. Now, Levi and I worked our way in there in the, to the GIF, but Donna's all the healthy stuff in there, so I guess we're kind of preppers. But <laughs> so, all right, so here's the thought, though. When, when, when James is saying, though, get your hearts ready, okay? He said, establish your hearts, okay? Some of you are maybe more preppers. You got stuff under your bed in the closet and all that stuff. I'm not saying whether to prep or not. I'm saying James says the prep is not about your peanut butter or your stuff under the bed or all that stuff or go out on a hill or whatever. Establish your hearts. That's the prep that James is saying. The Lord is coming. Are our hearts ready for his coming? For his coming. And those are great pictures that he's giving us of the Lord's coming. Of the Lord's coming. And what we realize is he is saying, don't just look inside. We got that suffering going on. Oh, it's hard. Yes. He's saying, look outward. The Lord is coming for his people. And it will be something that indeed we can only imagine. The Lord of the universe, the Lord of this earth and two trillion galaxies that he has made. Then James moves on to, he's given us an example. He's going to give us two more. He's given us an encouragement of the big picture. And then he says, all right, you might be the type who wants to tell me what to do and not to do. And James does that. He says, don't grumble. Don't grumble and don't judge is what he's pointing out here. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. So what does that have to do with suffering? Is this just James kind of, I'm just going to reel off some other commands to help you out. I want to throw this one in. No, they're related. Because think about this. 
when we're suffering, what do we want to do to kind of medicate, ease the pain from the suffering? Blame someone else. The reason I'm suffering is because of something you did or didn't do. Go back to the beginning. Adam and Eve, suffering, you got to leave the garden and you're going to die. It's your fault. Right off the bat, Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the servant. Adam ultimately says, God, it's your fault. (laughs) It's your fault. You gave me the one. Blaming. As soon as they're suffering, we're going to be tempted to blame. It could be, I'm tired today. It's because you snored all night and kept me awake. We, We want to blame in the midst of suffering. Our house has problems. It's brokenness and it's because you don't make enough money to get the stuff fixed and then even the expression kick the dog (laughs) kick the dog I want to blame the dog I'm gonna kick him because I had a bad day when we're suffering we want to pass the blame and justify ourselves I can feel a little bit better if I know that I can blame you and it's your fault James is saying no 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 Think about who's at the door. It says there, the judge is standing at the door. The judge. And that at the door is, the word is, he's before the door. It's like you open the door. There he is. He's there. That close. The judge. Who's the judge? Jesus. He's that close. And he's saying, I mean, Jesus is saying, maybe, maybe there's the skeptic among us. Who's saying, oh, here you go, hellfire and brimstone. You Christians, that's where We are going to say this to the unbeliever. We're going to say, we're not going to talk all the time about hellfire and brimstone, but we're going to say what Scripture says. And there is a judge who has, he has created everything so well. And he said, I'm the king. I love you. Live for me. You're responsible to do that. And you want to know me, hopefully as Savior and not as judge. And you're bickering amidst your suffering and blaming everyone else. I've taken that upon myself. I've taken that pain, that suffering, that blaming on me. Receive me so that you know me as Savior, not as judge. The Lord Jesus grants us that. And then next, well, I'm, I'm going to, jumping to the end here, and I'm going to come back to the verses before that. But as you look in your Bibles, verse 12 points this out. He gives another command, another exhortation. He says, don't swear. Do not swear. All right? So we probably might initially think, okay, Don't use the bad words. Okay, don't do that. I can check that off. I'll just try real hard not to say those words. And okay, I got this one. Now, don't do that, but that's not what James is talking about. Okay, he's talking about something else. What was happening in that culture, and Jesus addressed this too. You could probably line this passage up with Jesus, part of the verses on the Sermon on the Mount, and they match very well, where they're both saying, don't take oaths, don't take oaths. What's meant here? So at that time, in that culture, there were, there were these types of oaths, okay? There'd be ones that say, so Sam loans me a few dollars, 
and I say, Sam, I, I promise in the Lord's name I will pay you back tomorrow. And Sam knew, okay, he was set. He's going to get his five bucks back or whatever. But in the culture, what had happened was that, well, we know we're not really supposed to use the Lord's name. So what I'll do then is, Sam, I, I, I promise by my uncle Bob's estate that I'll pay you back tomorrow. Uh, not good enough. Well, I promise in heaven's name that I'll pay you back. Uh, okay, good enough. So you just kind of keep upping the scales there. And so maybe John doesn't believe that or whatever. I, I need a bigger vow to that. And so they kept upping the ante there on those. And you know what that sounds like, right? Back when you were a kid and you say, well, Jeff, you know, we're playing marbles and we're playing keepsies. If you win, you can have my marbles. Jeff wins. Ha, ha, ha. I had my fingers crossed. It's silly, right? And that's what was going on. James is saying, this is silly. <laughs> Be real. Be truthful. But what was happening, those vows were becoming so commonplace, so commonplace, that they weren't really effective. And it also, though, here's the key, it also proved that cheating and lying were common. And so here's the vicious cycle. If cheating and lying are common, then we need oaths, and then these oaths aren't worth anything, and then we're going more and more and more. James is saying, this is, this is ridiculous. So here's the question, though. Is he just saying, don't take oaths at all? You go in a courtroom, and they say, what? Swear to tell the truth. Are we saying don't do that? No. Go in the courtroom, tell the truth, okay? Take the oath. Oh, but wait, what have we been talking about in here, taking oaths? Uh-oh. <laughs> is that what this is talking about either? No. There is a time and place for oaths. In here, think about this. Who took oaths in the Bible even? Jesus did. Jesus did before the Sanhedrin. The high priest said, tell the truth. Are you the son of God? He said, it is as you say. Jesus was willing to take an oath at the right time and place. I'll I'll accept your culture, and I will give an oath. Should be just yes, yes, but I will give an oath. Paul gives many oaths. Even at the beginning of Romans, he says, Jesus is my witness how I remember each of you. So there are times for oaths. Go in the courtroom. Here before a church where it is something so serious. There is a time and place for an oath because... We have a culture, in a sense, that is so broken with lying, deception, shading the truth, qualifying truth, that oaths do have a, have a place. But the big idea of what he's saying here is this. For Christians, for the believer, be different. As we say over and over, we're a culture, a contrast culture. Our culture, truth is relative. We say, be truthful. Don't follow the way of the world where only some things do I need to be truthful about. And here's the connection to suffering. Think about this. Under suffering, is there not a temptation to let the circumstances dictate 
how truthful I will be. Yeah, I meant to pay that debt. I meant to pay them back. But now, hard times. I'm not going to worry about that. Don't let the circumstances dictate our truthfulness, our ethics, our speech. James knows it's not easy. We're called to this. Then this might be my favorite part. James comes back to, let me see. What I want is verses 10 and 11. So if you've got your Bible, look at that. Um, And maybe, Tim, you can help me. I'm trying to get to verses 10 and 11 here. There we go. Thank you. Um, So he's got our, our last two examples here. Fill in the phrase, the patience of Job, right? We know that expression. So Job, known for his patience. But look at this. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And then you think about Job in the Bible. All right, so here are some of the things that Job actually said. Okay, he says, see, he will kill me. I have no hope. He curses the day of his birth. He complains about his friend's long-winded speeches. Basically, shut up. (laughs) Shut up, guys. I've had enough. In more eloquent words. That doesn't sound so patient, right? Because Job is real. Job is real. Amidst that suffering, he's passionate. He endures. That's what I love about Job. He's real, and that's why it's called steadfastness, perseverance. He holds on so that he can also say, for I know that my Redeemer lives. He is passionate. The word used of of Job there, that um, steadfastness, is, is one that basically says, you know, we get that expression, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. I don't, I don't really want that. You know, God, I'll pass on the... Put that, put that to me, but effectively true for him, but it was, he comes out stronger on the other side. That's basically what that word means. He comes out stronger on the other side. Job was real, okay? He held on to the Lord amidst incredible suffering. Right? Now, here's the other thing to keep in mind. You know, we get to heaven, I bet there's going to be a, a lot of people <laughs> waiting in line. I want to I talk to Job, like, how'd you make it through that? I mean, I, I, I agree, yeah. Job, though, I mean, I don't want to go through that. It was very hard, but, but he did get back stuff, right? The prophets, okay? The thing about getting stuff back, think of the prophets, I would, I would have tended to think normally, the prophets, man, they had it so easy. If you're a prophet, God talks to you, and you just go say, God said this, and so that closeness with God, right? It's so easy to know God's there and trust and all that. Go say, that. okay, I did that. Mixed into this is the prophet Jeremiah. Okay? Jeremiah, I mean, I think he suffered his whole life. His whole life life. And then Joe, he got his stuff. Whole life. Social outcast, 
tortured. That's Jeremiah. That's an example that's in that to say, they did it. They held on and persevered. That's the ones that James is calling us to. He's calling us to that. And so you think of your own life. Okay, you know, you know the poem, right? Footprints, right? That, so Footprints, wonderful poem. And you know, so that you might be the type where, you know, it's kind of the question you ask God, well, what happened there? Two footprints and then there was one and then that answer, oh, that was when I picked you up and, and carried you. Thank you, Lord. So you may be the type that you say, I, I've never questioned God on anything. Praise God for that, for that type of faith. But I heard this just this week, and, and at first it's, it's funny, but or meant to be, wait, that doesn't sound good, but just hold on for a second. The guy, it was actually a comedian who said, well, I asked God, what happened when it went from the two footprints to one? And he said, well, God told me, yeah, that's where I thought we'd just hop a little bit and make it fun. And he said, that's what my life feels like. You know, I'm suffering and it's hard and you just took me boom, boom, boom like that. And so he was a comedian. But is that not often what we feel like? God, what are you doing? He's saying, this is better for you. It may be a little rough, but I've got you. I've got you. You feel like it's hopping, but I've got you. I've got you. And for us, what we're doing is holding on with that white-knuckled faith. That white-knuckled faith, as we're seeing, say, with Jeremiah. So James is saying, you know, there's, there's three answers to our question. Three answers that we've seen. The example, the encouragement, the exhortation. And James wants us to know, don't just listen to the voices of the world. Don't just listen to the voices in here. Go to God's word where you find your why. But you know what? I want you to go to God's word not just for the why, because in God's word, there's a who. There's a who tucked right in here. I'm giving you answers. I'm giving you encouragement. I'm giving you examples. I'm giving you exhortation. But there's a who wrapped into all this suffering. The Lord, the Lord Jesus is compassionate and merciful. Compassionate means he feels. He feels our pain. We know that. Jesus, a man of many sorrows, he feels. But mercy is not just feeling. Mercy is action. Compassion, feeling, mercy, action. That the Lord Jesus acted on our behalf. He acted on our behalf. And we have to realize that. And we don't want to waste our suffering because there is a who involved in this. That psalm, I, I still keep wrestling through it, even just reading it this week, this psalm. I know that in faithfulness, 
you have afflicted me. I know that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. That we don't waste our suffering. Whatever comes, there is a good God. God, you are good and you do good. Amidst whatever you give me. Whatever you give me. And I leave you with this last simple illustration. Right? When we're suffering, when we're suffering, what do we do? It's a sigh. Oh, that hurts. Oh. But you can't just breathe like that, right? <laughs> I, I got to breathe in. There's the exhale, the suffering, but there's the inhale, the inhale. James is saying amidst the suffering, inhale God's word. Don't let the world just give us this. Inhale God's word to minister to us in our suffering. And in that, maybe we find the, the why, like the three points here, but we're surely going to find the who. We're going to find the who. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, your word speaks to us. Sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's challenging. Often is. But we know the author and the perfecter of our faith and he is there in the word reaching out to us compassionate and merciful. Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for that. In your name we pray, amen.